Sure am. Welcome to Seeds of Awakening. Your favorite podcast. Woo! Thanks for returning. My, my name's Kimberly Jacobson. My name's Forrest Daniel Dwyer. And this week on Seeds of Awakening, we have a fun little... Interlude episode. Yeah. 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 We have some segments that we think you'll really enjoy. Um... One of them with Sophia Avramides, who you had the pleasure of meeting in our first episode. Mm -hmm. And she is going to talk of seasonal Vedic wisdom. So we are in the Northeast and seasons are starting to shift and change. So she's going to talk about some seasonal shifts that you might be experiencing and also some things to bring into your life and your practice and your body to help kind of move through the transition with ease a short segment that we're going to try to do every seasonal shift so about 10 to 15 minutes of, of knowledge for your vedic wisdom for your vedic wisdom yeah and so we have over the next few weeks we have a few interviews coming up um and so we wanted to throw out there the next Let's we'll do like three people or so that we'll be speaking with so if you have any questions that you would like us to share with these people and ask during our interviews uh we'd love to have you share them with us so we can ask so some of the next few people we'll be speaking with are um christy o'brien who's the co-founder of elements learning collaborative Mm -hmm. and elements is a nonprofit that provides year-round outdoor education and like project-based learning programs and it's so it's an alternative schooling option for children and it's designed to help children gain some like self-awareness and confidence so that they can problem solve mm. a little more easily. So it's this, it's, she's created this really, really cool program. Um, yeah, it's a really different approach to school, but it's a really cool approach to teaching yeah. kids and having them learn outdoors. Yeah. Um, we're also speaking with Kelvin Young, who is releasing a book, I believe, in September called Finding Freedom Behind Bars Through Sound Healing. So... He calls this this book a brutally honest essay, and in this, he'll share his story of prison, addiction, and how he's gone through such, like, wild transformation through sound healing, mm-hmm. and he's incredible. He's based in Connecticut, and he has tons of offerings that he does through the kind of New England and Connecticut area, and then lastly, we are speaking with Roland Murillo, who... <laughs> I could be pronouncing his last name wrong, but Roland's incredible. I picked up his book, Breakfast with Buddha. You love his books. I yeah. love Breakfast his with book. Buddha is a really great yeah. book. Yeah, I picked it up. You say it's great, but you, you're going to have I've to read it. I've heard from you. It's really great. <laughs> I'm going to read it before we interview him. Uh, but I picked it up probably maybe five years ago, and I just really loved it. It's it's a fiction novel, but it, it keeps things really light, and it also introduces some, like, buddhist concepts in a really light and accessible way so i just loved it i recommended it to so many people after reading it and he's written like over 20 fiction books so we'll be sitting down with him and speaking with him about the inspiration behind writing breakfast with buddha and how writing novels like that have become this really interesting outlet to explore spirituality and beliefs and what resonates with him and what doesn't yeah so that'll be a really fun conversation too. Yes. So if you guys have any questions that you're like those people call out to you and you say, Hey, I really want to ask them this. Um, shoot us a note. We're on all platforms, all the platforms, all the platforms. at 
Seeds of Awakening podcast. You can find us. Um, the first clip or segment that we're running is going to be the Ayurvedic Wisdom. The second one that we'll run is, is going to be uh, a new segment we're calling Story Time. Okay. And we just decided. We just decided. As of now. Uh, one thing we've been working on is writing um, and writing as well as looking at the philosophies like the Yamas and Niyamas mm-hmm. and the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and so we plan on launching a blog and the first ep- first ep- page of that blog is going to be uh, the one that we're going to kind of read through and discuss with you today. So um, if you love these segments, let us know. If you hate these segments, let us know. <laughs> we'll adapt. Thank you. Later, guys. to Vedic seasonal Vedic wisdom with Avraveda, aka Soph, aka the Don, who we met <laughs> in episode one. <laughs> the Don is the back. Don. The Don Don aka Don Vantry. And <laughs> Don Vantry <laughs> is the uh god of Ayurveda medicine or Ayurvedic medicine. So he mm. is the one that a lot of Ayurvedic doctors will Pray to and Don Vantry, like Lord Don Vantry. I love it. Yeah. So the Don. So the Don. For short. <laughs> L- Lord new, Don Vantry returns. Our new segment <laughs> where every season going into a season as we head kind of end into summer going into fall now, uh, we were going to talk with Soph um, the about Don. the Don, <laughs> about some changes that happen in nature and how they are going to affect things like what we eat, how we might act. Yes. Uh, much more, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. The doshas. Yeah. So for those who are in New England, like we are, we are sh- at the end of our summer. So it has been hot and fiery and humid for for some time. And this is the first week that it actually feels like fall. So mm. maybe do you want to talk f- first about like what what people might be experiencing at the end of this season and like kind of what's in excess or what we might have accumulated? Sure. Yeah. Accumulated is the right term for it. <laughs> so the idea is at the end of each season, we have probably like added on a lot of the energy about that season holds. So as Kim said, it's been hot and sticky and humid and it's the summer in New England. So if we have not been taking active care to alleviate this heat through swimming in the ocean or eating cucumbers and cool foods and spraying our face with rose water or taking relaxed evenings or like moon gazing or looking at the stars, um, these really cooling activities, then we may have accumulated a little excess fire that could be burning us. So a, a lot of people around this time might be experiencing a state of frustration or um, kind of just like almost a stagnation, but it's like a fiery stagnation um, of like knowing that you want to be doing things but are feeling kind of stuck in a Mm -hmm. space 
um, your digestion could be shifting a little bit and your digestion will be shifting because as we turn from this hot, humid season, we enter this cool, windy season of vata. And so moving from the pitta energy to the vata energy, you're going to feel discrepancies in both of those doshas. Pitta being the hot, fiery, mm -hmm. passionate dosha and vata being the creative, idealistic, visionary that mm -hmm. is prone to anxiety and feeling ungrounded. Mm -hmm. So you might feel kind of like a blend of both of those things. You might be feeling fiery yet ungrounded. <laughs> you might be feeling um, like really full of ideas, but your motivation feels kind of strange or wonky. Huh. And so it's this interesting transition between late summer to early fall and really navigating what that terrain looks like. Because mm -hmm. it's a great time of year, like we have all this passion and fire and now we have the, this wind coming in that we can really like run with it. Mm. But you have to then take all those elements mm -hmm. in and be mindful of them and, and work with them so they can work in your favor. Cool. Yeah. What, what are some things you mentioned um, in the summer, like a lot of those things, jumping in the ocean, spraying rose water on your face? What are the things in the Do transition? I know yeah. last time we talked, you talked about this is the season to eat apples. And so what are some mm. of the things that as we transition that might be smart to start to bring into life or experiment with? Definitely still honor the cooling foods. So I was actually just at the farm stand and I was looking at what was available. And the farm stand's like your best friend in understanding what needs to be um, consumed because that's what's growing around you. and. Uh, they say that with nature, it, no matter where you are, nature will provide the antidote for the most extreme case of the season that you're in. Hmm. So really looking at what's like abundant and available at the moment. So just now I was at the farm stand and there was still a plethora of summer squash, um, a cooling kind of juicy, sweet vegetable. It's called summer squash, um, very watery and like heavy and it's it's dosha. So that or in its gunas or qualities. So sweet actually is really helpful for both pitta and vata, which are the two things we're working with. Um, so summer squash and then transitioning into squash in general. So like butternut squash, mm -hmm. delicata squash, acorn squash, like whatever squashes, they're a little more heavy and unctuous and sweet. And so they'll they'll work with both pitta and vata in cooling pitta, but also grounding vata during this transition. Um, apples are awesome. I remember reading that, I don't, it's not the pectin in apples, it's something in apples, but apples themselves are just a cooling, like delicious fruit and they're obviously a fall seasonal fruit. And the mm. idea is that it helps with that accumulated fire mm -hmm. and it helps like like purge and detox your liver and gallbladder. Mm. And so that's really nice. And the liver is an organ of pitta because it's fiery. So if you have accumulated fire, eating apples and detoxing your liver is really great for it. Mm. Um, and, you know, detoxing the liver is a really big thing to do in the spring as well, but it's kind of just like maintenance. Um, and then other things are, are really, like I said, pay attention. Like there's yeah. greens. Um, you know, I just got some really nice kale and chard and mm. that just carries through the spring to the fall. Um, really whatever, whatever you find in season, but yeah. as you also, 
I mean, you mentioned it being a time of like, you have a lot of ideas, but you feel sometimes maybe ungrounded or frustrated. Mm -hmm. We were talking about this yesterday, being a time where it feels like it might be more important to sit down and meditate Mm. and like restore in that way. One million percent. Yeah. I, and I cannot agree with that more (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) at all. Like it's, it feels way more necessary than ever Mm -hmm. to really get into yourself because we're all going, 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 and we're all excitable and we all are feeling this really incredible transition between what has been, what currently is and what will be and Mm. what can be and like the only way to get to that space is by going inward and really removing using the fire of the late summer to burn through Mm. the stuff that you do not need or will not bring you to the next space and allowing it to burn away and then like letting the wind carry you forward (laughs) you know so meditation 100 percent. yeah i just noticed yesterday we kind of brought up that conversation I was out and we've been we've been trying to run so I was running and then I had to just like just stop and I was like I can't run anymore and it almost was like this overstimulation of every sense it was just like complete overload and I was like I I think I need to stop and breathe and just like be in solitude and breathe by myself for a little while that's beautiful to be able to recognize that and breathing's the most important tool, like 100% for every dosha, no matter what season you're in, breath work. Um, and for me personally, like I've been noticing like where my breath is really shallow. <sighs> and like uh, how I can really like deepen that and why and where it's getting stuck in my body too. Like what's what's the cause of it? Is it a fiery emotion is it like what like what is causing the shallowness and how can I operate with it and so there's different breath work practices you can obviously do too so like alternate nostril breathing is really helpful Mm -hmm. for all the doshas Mm -hmm. it it's grounded and cooling and then if you really need to cool down like doing shitali like is really fun Mm -hmm. and it's I think a really good time to go inward for sure yeah and too much movement and like too much force isn't going to bring us where we have to go either it's Mm. really like we've been moving you know we've been doing the things and so now it's a time to really sit with it and be like what's cooked up like what have I cooked like what have I created and how is this now going to feed me Mm. Hmm. so what are some you mentioned some like practices that are are great to take in the summer, like jumping in the ocean Mm -hmm. and um, again, rose water on the face. So for this transition, like what are some like topical or external remedies that you'd suggest? External remedies. So, because I know like depending on the seasons, yeah, you can kind of shift yeah, the oils and stuff you use. Yeah, 100%. Like, so you can shift like what you use for Abhyanga. Mm. Um, in the summer, a lot of people don't 
Abhyanga because it's so sticky and hot, at least in New England. So they explain don't, what that is? Abhyanga is self-oil massage. So it's taking oil. I, I knew. But yeah. <laughs> for everyone who... who <laughs> so Abhyanga is um, a self-oil massage. And in the summer, if you are oil oiling um, to treat, say, a sunburn or bug bites or like just still ground back into your body, um, which is, you know, one of the ideas of Abhyanga is to to feed your skin oil and, and hydrate and nourish your skin, but also to ground into yourself. And it's an act of self-love. And you would be using coconut oil or sunflower oil ideally in the summertime because they're more cooling. Mm. In the fall, you can stick to the sunflower um, because it's a little more of a moderate. It's not too cooling nor mm. heating. Mm. Um, so you can, you know, honor the that balance because sometimes in the summer you have I mean in the fall you have 80 degree days right Right. so in New England everything is so unpredictable and you kind of have to roll with it day by day like we've had some cooler days this summer where it feels like fall and now it's sticky and hot again and Mm -hmm. so you really need to pay attention to the day itself and how you're feeling in the day and kind of go from there. But to find different um, middle ground options is really helpful. And sunflower oil is definitely one of them. Um, And it's also something that's like more available and more in tune with New England um, Mm. because there are sunflowers in New England and we can grow that here and we can process sunflower oil here. So utilizing local foods once again and local oils and local food products that's really clutch (laughs) so yeah clutch clutch. (laughs) yeah (laughs) any any final tips for the folks as they head into fall stay grounded and be excited with you know this like input of cooler weather and allow that to to bring you to new places of you know, creativity and experimentation. However, stay grounded in yourself and find your seated meditation. You know, I've always been a proponent of anything you do could be meditation. You know, you could be on your laptop and it could be meditation, which isn't really that true. But like you could go on a walk and be in meditation or dance and be in meditation. And that's all true. However, there is something really powerful about sitting in silence and being in a meditative state or putting yourself there no matter how hard it is. And I think that that's what my... So needed. What my like number one tip would be is just keep returning back to yourself. Go to the farm stand if there is one near you. Get some local roots like carrots, potatoes, sweet potatoes, squashes. Those are all your mm. friends right now. Um, as we head into the cooler season and nourish yourself, that's the best best thing you can do. Thanks, Soph. It's our seasonal Vedic wisdom with <laughs> the Don. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Welcome to story time. <laughs> Does it have a sound effect? Welcome to story time. I don't know. I thought you had something with your mouth. There. I th- was I was thinking about it, and honestly, I had I I feel like I want the sound of flipping pages. Like perfect. Now that you want to try it one more yeah, time. Yeah. Welcome ready? to story time. All right. <laughs> so that was a seamless <laughs> seamless cut. 
So this story begins. There's an ancient story actually about a warrior named Arjuna. Arjuna. Many people regard this story as a sacred text, the text that speaks such truth it stands the test of time and mm. can be referred to in any moment. The story is called the Bhagavad Gita. Which, in one of our episodes, I think, um, who is it? I think it's Sarah. Sarah Davidson Flanders. She calls the Bhagavad Gita a honey of a text. A honey <laughs> which of a I text. love. That's true. <laughs> she has such a good definition of si- sacred texts. Um, mm. Anyway, it places the warrior Arjuna at a crossroads. Uh, a crossroads we all meet at many times along the walk of life. The story starts with Arjuna prepped for battle, leading his army to war against an evil king. As Arjuna steps onto the battlefield, he feels the weight of a horrible truth. He recognizes that the men he's meant to kill are his family, his friends, and his teachers. And Arjuna has a crisis in this moment, and in doing so, has a conversation with Krishna, who is his, who is God. And in the crisis, he plummets to his knees and says to Krishna, When the battle begins, how can I shoot arrows through those who deserve my reverence? It would be better to spend the rest of my life as a pauper, begging for food than to kill these honored teachers. I'm with him. I'm with him too. It, I have a teacher who says, um, he talks about the Bhagavad Gita and he says, this is probably the worst time to have a mental breakdown. About to go into battle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so Arjuna is between a rock and a hard place. He suggests it would be better to lay down and perish than to win a war. And it begs the question that comes up for me which is how many times in our lives do we feel like it would be better to just give up or to not speak up or to not honor who we are or what we know to be true because it will be hard and could distance the people we know respect and love Mm. (laughs) so that's the question of the day it's the start is like how many people or how many times do you think we as people just kind of silence ourselves because it might be challenging or it might distance somebody that we care about. Probably all the time. All the time. And it's going to, like, they require sometimes hard conversations or what's something that might feel like a war or a battle. Yeah, something, uh, something I struggle with. And it's so wild that it's, I feel like it's just from childhood. I remember that, um, what is it that, it's like that phrase that parents always say, like, if it's not, if it's not nice, don't say it don't say it at all yeah but then but then it also comes back to you know and then i love that phrase like go through the checklist like is it true is it kind is it necessary Mm -hmm. but yeah the thing that this brings up that i think happens to me a lot is when like when we get into this point a lot I, I often do what Arjuna does which is like I instead of doing anything I just kind of like sit there and like well I, I just won't do anything yeah I'll like just sit paralyzed. in silence and do absolutely nothing and that's the point where Krishna he the whole book is Krishna answering this this crisis the Bhagavad Gita but the answer that fascinates me now is the one that he says, not by avoiding action does a man gain freedom from action, and not by renunciation alone can he reach his goal. He says, no one, not even for an instant, can exist without acting. All beings are compelled, however unwilling. And so it, it brings to a point where he's saying that all action is a choice. So even moments when you feel like the only options to lay down and like pull up the covers and quiet yourself are moments where you're choosing 
That's that. Yeah, it's yeah. a choice to do, to do that, to do nothing. And he goes on to say, it's better to speak and do your truth than to do nothing at all. He actually says, it's better to do your own duty badly than to perfectly do another's. And he says, you're safe from harm when you do what you should be doing. Which I think is like, the, the Bhagavad Gita is a kind of a poetic scripture. And I yeah. think that's one of the most poetic lines that Stephen Mitchell in this, this translation translates. You're safe from harm when you, should, when you do what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I could rant about that. You can. <laughs> but you, s- I mean, you see it universally. I just know, like, there's all these, when it's time to sit down and have a really tough conversation or I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to, like, tell someone this thing or whatever it is. It's like when it's in line with what I'm supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. I am always happily surprised by the outcome. Right. Where it's just like the everything in the universe energetically has aligned for for everything to go smoothly if it's in line with kind of that checklist of Whereas am I living in truth? Yeah, and sometimes the opposite happens where it's like this is going to be so easy. It makes so much, like on paper, it makes so much sense. And then it's chaos. But in your gut, it's like I really shouldn't be doing this. It's a waste of And then it's just chaos and it's like an absolute disaster. And you're like, how could that have failed? It was set up for <laughs> perfect success. Yep, yep. <laughs> so we'll continue on our story. All right. With the knowledge... With that knowledge, it's essential for us to understand the depth of truth. And when the Bhagavad Gita mentions duty, it means living our dharma or living our true calling. In essence, it means being radically true to who you are. So you might be familiar with the eight limbs of yoga. And if you're not, then we're going to start to explore the first limb, which is the yamas. And they're otherwise known as ethical disciplines. The yamas are a guideline in yoga on the way of living, li- living, <laughs> on the way of living with more joy and less suffering, and so the second of five yamas is satya, which you have tattooed on Radical your arm. Radical truth. Radical Beow. truth, and it speaks to the notion of truthfulness. It goes beyond being honest to others. It means harboring truthfulness as a way of life, truthfulness to what you believe in, and truthfulness to the people you speak to. But the many times and more, it's easier to succumb to the ease of a subtle lie, especially when you're telling it to yourself. So the Yamas preach truthfulness as an essential piece to living without suffering. And we see this in our lives constantly too, right? We, we tell ourselves a subtle lie and it builds this wall of anxiety because we encase ourselves in a world where fear beco- we have this fear of becoming discovered as an imposter. It's like we, we just imprison ourselves in anxiety. And I'm, we love this book. Deborah Adele Ugh. wrote The Yamas and Yamas. It's so good. And we're going to have her on as a guest one day. Yes, um, she doesn't know. But <laughs> she doesn't know. But the truth, she <laughs> writes, truth has the power to right wrongs and end sorrows. It is fierce in its demands and magnanimous in its offerings. Truth demands integrity in life. And then she goes on to say why it's easier to slip into a comfortable lie. She says, truth rarely seems to ask the easier choice of us. Yeah. We were just talking about this the other day. It's like... We talk about this like every day. Every day. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it is. I mean, like truth rarely seems to ask the easier choice of us. No. But it is interesting. I mean, there is a whole entire like segment in, in this kind of chapter of Satya Mm-hmm. where she she talks a lot about like yes initially 
kind of offering up the truth at first is not the easier option, but also think about how many layers that you create when living in a little bit of a lie. Mm -hmm. And it's even just something as simple as like, uh, as like when you, I don't know, when you. What do you mean when you create more layers? (sighs) Like when you're not living in truth and you say, oh yes, like I can do something. Yes, I'll help you out. But then really like your gut is like, no, I can't. I can't fit anything else in. And then all all the hoops you have to jump through, you know, as time goes by and you realize, no, you really can't actually do the thing you promised someone. And so now you're trying to rework all the pieces so that like it's almost more effort in the long run to offer up a lie than it is to offer the truth. While the truth maybe is a little more discordant in first approach there's just so much more effort involved and i know i'm like i've done this a thousand times myself i promised to do something for someone and then i realized was like oh my gosh i can't i just can't i just can't do that thing yeah and now it's fi- it's taking up my brain space and now i'm like feeling anxiety <laughs> about it and now i'm trying to like okay how can i rework my schedule or who else can i find that can help that person and i spend way more time like right putting my energy towards this one situation than if I had just been truthful in the first place. I think of the same thing when, uh, especially in relationship, when somebody does something and you tell this subtle lie to yourself that like it's fine even if it's not to you. And so what ends up happening is like you end up building this resentment and it ends up hurting you and hurting you and hurting you because they do it over and over and over again mm-hmm. and they don't realize they it's don't hurting know. you. Yeah. And so you have built the, like you, you thought you were doing a good thing because you were trying to be nice by not telling them that you didn't like something. And in the long run, it ends up with you just being like hateful towards this person because you've, they've done something to you for so long they've had no clue what they were doing. Do you feel that way? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I've got something to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's an odd way to take this story. But now we dive into Winston Churchill. Perfect. Perfect. Nothing says Satya like Winston Churchill. Truth. He (laughs) (laughs) He inspired a nation by living these two virtues with courage. So we'll drift from our warrior to share a real life example of what it means and what it might cost to live this way. Winston Churchill's a warrior. Don't diminish him like that he's more of a politician churchill (laughs) felt the weight of the war that's for sure our print the same weight our prince arjuna felt see he understood the need for action and he understood how to live embodied in truth even knowing its fierce demands deborah adele when speaking about truthfulness said this when a conflict arises between the need to belong and the need to grow Mm -hmm. we have to make a choice We must either sacrifice a part of ourselves to maintain our belonging or we must risk approval and support of the group by growing. That's so hard. It's so hard because it's true. I mean, like you, when a conflict arises, we need to make a choice between either belonging or growing. And, and this is a point where we hit all the time, I think, but Churchill lived this statement. Churchill's political career centered around the war in Nazi Germany, and in the years leading up to the war, he found himself between a rock and a hard place, much like Arjuna. See, he knew it was his duty and the truth that Hitler and his reign was an evil one. At the time, though, he was an outlier in this belief. 
Churchill had to make a choice to go with the group and save his political career or to act upon his duty. And Churchill is one of the best examples in our history of a person who did act. Churchill's counterparts allowed the need to belong to step in front of the truth and blind them from reality. There's a cost to broadcasting the truth, and many times the cost seems far too high. We fail to recognize that the opportunity cost is far greater, and Churchill understood this. Churchill's counterparts tried to go with the group to belong. The vast majority believed it was correct to enter peace talks and hand over, Hitler's, hand over land to Hitler. It was Churchill who sacrificed his political tenure, and he did so at the risk of being run out of office. Four years before the war even began, because Churchill opposed this so vehemently, he even notes himself that it was almost the universal view that my political life was at last ended. He was doing wild. <laughs> but his speaking the truth against what people wanted to hear rather because they needed to hear it would continue. He would be right in the end. Germany was arming for war and everybody started to agree with him that falling to Hitler would be a really dark time. And in that time, his political career did not end. Instead, in 1940, Churchill won the election to be prime minister. People believed he would be strong enough to take the helm through chaos and war. And this is something to be noted, because being a person who speaks the truth takes strength. Mm. Others, despite their thoughts of you, I mean, they did not like Winston Churchill, but despite their thoughts of you, will turn to that strength when it's needed. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Again and again, Churchill lands in truthfulness and action, preaching and embodying the need to be honest about what lay in front of them and the need to act with bravery. Churchill did something that I think many leaders in our time need to step into. He spoke in a way that inspired people with honesty, and he did not say that this would be an easy war. He didn't even tell people they would win. He told the people that they may have to sacrifice everything, and most importantly, he told them why. He delivered his first speech as prime minister with power and is even more influential for its honest simplicity. In the actual blog that will release, I have the whole speech in there. It's only three paragraphs, but he tells the people that their aim is victory at all costs and that there might be no survival. I always think that's powerful Bold. when I read this speech. I'm a big fan of speeches, but, <laughs> but I always think that's powerful that like he he refused to even tell them that it was going like we will survive we will win this i love that so churchill's honesty wasn't just to the people of his nation his honesty is all real honesty does stemmed from himself he did not take a second to lie to himself about his situation or the nation's situation as thomas rooks says in his book churchill and orwell in mid-May, walking across from Downing Street to the Admiralty Building, he was cheered by a crowd. And as soon as they were in the building, he dissolved into tears. His military assistant, General Hastings Ismay, was standing near him, and he explained his emotion. Poor people. They trust me, and I can give them nothing but disaster for quite a long time. <laughs> Which I think is so relevant. I think... In order to be honest, like it's, I mean, it's the same thing as finding peace is like all of this, all of these things in order to really be honest and live your life where you're not just the nice person, you're really the honest person and you can do that in a nice way. But 
you have to be able to be honest with yourself. Right. I mean, if you're somebody, if Churchill's going around thinking like everything's great, we're going to win this war. It's no problem. And that's so incredible. And I'm, and I'm so like right now in our, in our era, we're just constantly looking for ways to like become more honest with ourselves. And right. That's what we do with meditation. That's what we do with Mm -hmm. yoga is like, we try to find moments of stillness so that maybe somewhere in there, we can see a little glimpse of truth that we tend to cover up with like all the distractions and all the things. So I'm curious, like there's people like Churchill. Mm -hmm. Like I'm so curious about what kept him so connected and doubtless in in his belief and in his truth. Yeah. I mean, he fortunately, I mean, he was going up against a true evil. I think the, but was also like, was also an outlier in his outlier. Yeah, that's so like, true. it's not like he had all this support system being like, yes, that is evil. <laughs> and I think that's a good point. Like I think in everyday life, it's harder to distinguish. Right. Um, but it's, it's also something that, sometimes you just don't have the support system and how do you continue to be resolute in it even when you don't have a support system right because it's so easy it would have been so much easier and as deborah adele says it's much easier to tell the lie it would have been so much easier to be like i'm the only one i'm just gonna give in right well she says and she says too she often hears people say, I just don't know what to do when it comes to these kind of circumstances mm-hmm. of like, do I share this truth? Or there's also like the popular belief. And she says, I think more often than not, we do know what to do. The cost of our realness just seems too high at the time. Mm. The cost of our realness, yeah. So, and, and I mean, his his cost was extremely high. Yeah, I mean, he he even assumed his political career would be ended doing what he was doing. And I think it's true. I mean, so often it's like, I should do that, but the cost, like, I know the cost is too high. Like, it it could ruin my relationship. It could, you know, make my life so much more harder to, to execute. Right. So, the battle does wage on. And it brings a lot of disaster, more than anyone could imagine now that we look back. Churchill understood what Krishna preached to Arjuna in the sacred text of the Bhagavad Gita. He understood that it was his calling, his truth, and that action was necessary. And this is the piece that I think we were just talking about. If it wasn't for Churchill constantly, consistently sharing his voice, the war against Hitler would have turned very differently. And he may have taken over the UK and then eventually the United States as well. But in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna... The prince says, why should I fight? And this is the question that we were just kind of talking about. Like, why should I do it? It's so much easier to not. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we know we should, but we still don't. Mm-hmm. And why should I act? And Krishna res- responds by saying, action is far greater than inaction. Not by avoiding action does a man gain freedom. And Churchill embodied this. Like in war, more than anything, he feared passivity. His whole idea everywhere and at all times was attack, attack, attack. And he once told one of his air commanders, it's it's better than doing nothing. His air commander was like, I don't understand the strategy of us attacking. His answer was, it's better than us doing nothing. And Churchill believed like so firmly that challenges are meant to be faced and confronted that he delivers one of my favorite lines of all times to his minister of agriculture, which... 
proves this point. He said, I wish I could persuade you to try to overcome the difficulties instead of merely entrenching yourself behind them. Mm. And I love that line because I think so many people get caught in this, this cycle where instead of actually overcoming the difficulties, they entrench themselves behind them and they build a wall and they let the difficulties become their work instead of just overcoming them in the work they should be doing. Right. Yeah. It's the same idea of like, is life happening to you or is life happening for you? Yeah. And it's like either you can just let it happen to you (laughs) and just be like like, submerged uh. (laughs) in all of the things or... You look like you were melting. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> I was. <laughs> so Churchill understood what the Bhagavad Gita goes to preach, that life is not about hiding from your challenges and fearing the work ahead of you. Life is nothing but the work itself. So you better step into the work, live with honesty in your heart, and attack, attack, attack. <laughs> um, and the questions are, what would your life look like if you were able to live truth in every moment? How much bolder would you have to be? How much more action would you have to take? Where would it lead you? What Would it create a better life and a better world? And the, the thing that stands out to me is like, how much bolder would you have to be? You know, when Deborah Adele preaches truthfulness in the Yamas and Niyamas, what Winston Churchill had to do, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, he's got to fight people that he thinks are his family and friends. Like it takes such a level of boldness and like overcoming your own fears and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly bold. I mean, also because we're just ever evolving in our thought, like our, our decisions and our thoughts, the closer you step into truth, you know, it's almost like you uncover an even more bolder part of yourself and then sharing that with people who kind of have expected you to live a certain way for a long time. And it like asks you to be more courageous and more courageous and more courageous. Yeah. Continuing to be more and more. I want to give a quick shout out to the three books. Um, There was Stephen Mitchell who translated the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Deborah Adele, the Yamas and Niyamas. And um, the last one was Churchill and Orwell by Thomas Ricks, which I all three books are amazing. Um, this is story time. We're planning on releasing a blog every month. Um, so this will be the, f- the first one. And we'll the foundation of our podcast will still be interviews and meeting new cool people but if this is a segment that you guys like let us know yeah and we'll uh we'll keep doing it